Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's Brain Talks, um, where we're really grateful to have with us Dr. Nathaniel Chin. He's um, the medical director of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Clinic, um, joining us from Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Chin. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to talk about assessing your genetic risk um, through by looking at your genes. Um, and, you know, I know that there's been a lot of research going into genetics and what we can determine by looking um, at different genes that have already been um, associated with an elevated risk of Alzheimer's disease. But um, maybe what you can do is just give us a, where are we today with research and our genetics? Excellent question. Okay, so we use genetics in most of our research as far as assessing the research participants that enroll in our studies. We know that there are certain genes that are very much associated with the development of Alzheimer's disease. And so knowing whether they have those genes is important in determining whether the other factors that we're looking at play a role as well. So we need to control for the presence of those. And in Okay, oh, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. In, in particular, we do look for the apolipoprotein E, known as ApoE, uh, in particular ApoE4. And so that is a very well-known, very well-researched uh, genetic linkage to the development of Alzheimer's disease. Now, that is um, obviously known as um, the Alzheimer's gene because of the associated elevated risk. You can have either one copy or two, two copies. Um, and depending on whether you have one or two, um, uh, uh, really assesses like how much more you're at risk, right? So just tell us for people who don't know a lot about APOE4, um, let's tell them a little bit about what we know about um, how that gene is um, related to Alzheimer's disease. So there are three versions of APOE. We have APOE2, 3, and 4. Three is the most common version in the population, and that is what we would consider to be a neutral risk. If you have ApoE2, there is some um, evidence to show that that is a protective factor in the development of Alzheimer's, and then having ApoE4 increases your risk for developing Alzheimer's. Now, like you said, there are two versions. You get one from each of your parents, and so you could have any combination of the two. And we know that there is an increased risk with one allele and or one version of ApoE4. And so there are many studies that will say two to five times the risk. And then if you have two of those, so you got one from both of your parents, then it's about 12 to 15 times the risk. Now we know that, you know, what maybe you could tell us a little bit about what the exact function is of APOE. I mean, to give us, you know, depending on which one you have, you're either neutral, um, a bit protective, or at risk. What function does it play in our bodies? So APOE is related to cholesterol transport throughout the body. So it can be made in the liver as well as in the brain, and it is what truly carries around our good cholesterol. Um, from the liver throughout the rest of our body into our brains where our brain uses it or all of our cells use it to build sort of the material of our bodies. And so it, we know that there is a, an association between certain 
of these versions and certain use of cholesterol within the brain. So is it, um, what is it about E4 um, and the transport of cholesterol that perhaps could make us more at risk? Do we know that yet? So now with absolute certainty, that's an excellent question. And that is one that researchers are constantly looking into. There are a lot of beliefs that, and there's a lot of research going into the underlying pathway for how ApoE4 relates to Alzheimer's. And it's a worthy thing to investigate because of that strong association. The more we know about it, the more we can understand the pathways and then eventually uh, develop targets for us to intervene on. Now there, ApoE4 is related to brain cell health. So whether or not our brain cells have enough of the structure to be um, a solid cell, it, it relates to our synapses, which is the connection between cells, and that's how our cells communicate. We know that ApoE deals with the maintenance and the health of those connections. And so there's more and more evidence that ApoE is also related to the vascular health, the blood vessel health between our brain cells and what feed our brain cells. So you can see the more we look into it, the more we see how related it is to so many different functions within the brain. And that saying, um, what's good for uh, the heart is good for the brain, right? And so you realize that there, there has to be connections between all of these systems within our body. Absolutely. And in my clinic, I say what's good for the brain is also good for your heart. So <laughs> depends on what you think is the most important. Yeah, well, they're both pretty important. <laughs> also the cardiologist. Um, so we have a question coming in um, from a viewer right now who asks, um, can you tell us how close we are to having personalized risk reports available based on genetics, especially beyond APOE4? Um, is that something you see in the future? Now, this is a good question because we're reading reports. There was one recently that um, a research researchers had identified more genes that could pose an elevated risk towards um, Alzheimer's disease. So, are we anywhere close where we get our um, you know our entire um, genome mapped and we have a personalized report saying, okay, your risk is exactly this related to your genes? That's that's a tough question. We are getting closer and closer to developing these, what we call polygenic risk scores, or really just scores that include genetics, that include other factors. We're, we're much closer now than we were years ago, but to the, to the point where it would be available for the public, I don't think we're, I think that would be years from now. And really a lot of that has to do with, we should be very certain of what it is that we're looking at before we have the general public having access to that, because we don't want to make mistakes with it. And we don't want, to be leading people down the wrong path or scaring people or in inducing some other side effects without really knowing what, what it is we're studying. I have to be honest, I'm kind of losing track because we delve so deeply at being patient into the research. Um, so I know uh, that we there's several um, early onset genes that have been identified um, to elevate. If, if you have one of those genes, it, it, you're most likely going to end up uh, with early onset, depending on um, how, how long you live and where you are in life. Um, and then there's APOE4. Now, we're, we're hearing now studies, uh, one that just came out of the UK, where they looked at hundreds of thousands of people's um, profiles and um, 
Um, some of them, they had scans and they categorized these people in terms of who had a parent um, with Alzheimer's disease, because a lot of these people, of course, did not have Alzheimer's yet. Um, and there they looked at um, their genetic profiles and were able to identify several more. But I don't think these genes yet are deemed an elevated risk. They're, they were just looking for common patterns. So maybe you could tell us, where are we right now? I mean, we know E4, we know um, PREN1 and 2 for early onset, and I think APP are the three identified for early onset Alzheimer's. Um, but do we know anything else right now? And are these studies um, really conclusive to say that there, there will be more, more genes um, that elevate our risk? What I do think these studies are showing that there's a lot more to the picture than APOE and that we are going to be finding more and more of these genes, maybe not to the same degree that APOE is, but that will have their own role and may work synergistically for or against the development of Alzheimer's. And that study you're referring to is an excellent one. It had hundreds of thousands of people in it, and they used a family history as sort of their phenotype, meaning they took a look at a group of people and divided them between, do you have a family history or do you not? And then they looked at their gen genetic code and they looked for specific gene mutations that were more associated with Alzheimer's than, than not, or more associated with the family history or not. And so it doesn't show a causal relationship. It doesn't mean that this gene causes Alzheimer's, but it just, it showed a signal that they're more associated with each other. And I think it's careful, it's important that we're careful about that. Uh, the, the ones that they showed, there were three new ones, and two of them dealt with blood pressure and one dealt with uh, a clotting factor. And so, frankly, the, the blood pressure one made a lot of sense. We have a lot of studies that show the relationship between blood pressure and Alzheimer's and blood pressure and the development of the protein that leads to Alzheimer's. And so I do think we're getting closer to finding more solid evidence for other genes, but I don't think we're at the point yet where we can say definitively, it's APOE, it's this, and it's this. Okay, and this next question is one that we all think about uh, when we have a relative with Alzheimer's disease. Um, your dad suffered from early onset. My mother uh, has Alzheimer's disease. And we're all faced with, do we want to know? Um, so the next question that has just come in is, um, when patients ask you if you should get, uh, sorry, the relatives, I should say, say, should I get a test? My mom was diagnosed or my dad was diagnosed. What do you say? So I would tell them that it is a very individual decision and that we really need to look at a few things before we address the genetic test itself. But why are you getting this test and what are you hoping the result will mean for you? If you're getting it because you want to just know, or if you're getting it because you believe that that test result will change how you're going to live the rest of your life, there's more value to that than just simply knowing. And I say that carefully because I think information is power. And I would never want someone to not get it simply because of something like that that I've just said. But I also think we know that there are consequences to knowing this, this information. And as of now, we do not have personalized medicine. So we do not have treatments that are specific for people with the ApoE4 gene. And so what the result of this test is not going to change the treatments I'm gonna give you in clinic. And I think that's important because if you get it and, there's, and the side effect of knowing this is depression or anxiety or stigma, this fear that every time you make a mental mistake that this is 
really going to be Alzheimer's and it, and it paralyzes you, that might not be worth the knowledge. But if you're someone who says, well, now that I know I have this risk factor, I'm gonna quit smoking, I'm gonna change my diet, I'm gonna exercise every day, then there's power to that. And so I have a, a conversation like that with, usually it's the children of my patients in clinic. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I've, we've been sent that question um, over and over again uh, with people asking, you know, what, what, what should we do, um, you know, and, and now that there are things like 23andMe coming out, there's, there's a lot, you know, there to consider um, before and, and knowing some people actually find out their status without really wanting to know it, right? So um, there, there's a lot we don't know. I, I was, we were talking about this earlier, how the technology is almost advancing faster than a lot of things that we are able to think about and really analyze what the best way is. Um, I think this next question is really re um, relevant to our conversation. Um, obviously um, sent in by someone in the industry saying, is medicine doing the public a disservice by overplaying the impact of the APOE4 gene while underplaying the power of a healthy diet and lifestyle to mitigate the risk. Um, having the knowledge so that it can be acted upon from early in life might not only decrease Alzheimer's, but will also help curb the ever-rising incidence of all of those with comorbidities. So Dr. Chin, what do you have to say about that? Really the focus more on prevention. Um, if we know that there are things we can do with our own lives, um, you talked about high blood pressure, other comorbidities, diabetes, all of these things that there is an association with um, dementia. Um, why not focus on that? Well, I, you know, I can't characterize all of healthcare. I can tell you that at our institution of University of Wisconsin, we do spend a lot of our energy focusing on modifiable risk uh, risk factors for prevention and for the hopes of modifying those who already have cognitive impairment. And I do think that we really do need as a whole country, as a whole uh, continent to be focusing on prevention, on healthy behaviors, and less so on uh, the consequences of, of knowing your, your, uh, your genetic risk or, or um, really making it a one and done, this is what it is. And so, you know, best of luck to you. And so I, I can appreciate whoever wrote that comment. There are many people that I've encountered who are very frustrated with the healthcare system and how they have both been treated and the plans that have been made after the diagnosis. And I do think it's taking time, but hopefully we're, we are having a shift in the, in the healthcare culture in focusing on behaviors, on prevention, but also just on a meaningful way of living so that we all can age the best way possible. Okay, and another question, which is quite interesting. Um, we hear about these studies of regions in the world um, that have a lower incidence of Alzheimer's disease. So how, how much should we put on uh, in determining um, lifestyle versus genetics. Um, you know, we, we've also heard about a place in Africa where they're very prevalent with APOE4, um, but yet they have very uh, small incidence of Alzheimer's disease. So where, where is science putting more, um, uh, where are they placing their bets more, so to speak? 
Well, I would say that, you know, what you're speaking to is something that science is very much investigating, which is epigenetics. This idea that we are not just our genes, that our lifestyles, how we live our life, our life experiences modify what our genes do to us. And it's this idea that we can activate and deactivate different genes based on how we live. We can do those. Those genes could then interact with other genes such as ApoE and that really a person's course is very unique because of how they're living their lives. So that example of the, the population in Africa, as well as the blue zones, the five blue zones throughout the country or throughout the, the world, that we're, we're seeing that it isn't just your genes, it is your lifestyle. And we can't necessarily change the genetic code itself, but we might be able to change how that genetic code translates to, to our bodies. So what do you tell uh, patients who come to you and they obviously have an elevated risk? Um, what do you tell them? What can they do? Um, if you are E4 or you have um, one of the early onset genes, what do you tell them to do? Is there something that we know we should be doing in order to lower um, our risk um, by taking control of lifestyle? Yes. So I have a, a very specific uh, plan that I talk to my patients about, uh, most of it, if not all of it, based in the research that is currently being done, a lot of it being done at our own uh, NIA center here in Wisconsin. The first and foremost is physical activity. So much of our science, and we see these publications come out on a weekly basis, those that are physically active end up doing better. And we, we know that that's related to the heart and the vascular system, but we're also showing evidence of physical activity and its effects on the protein, the amyloid protein that leads to Alzheimer's disease. And so the first thing and the most important thing I tell my patients is please get up and move. Any movement is good movement, but I really want people to raise their heart rate and to be uh, physically active, moderate physical fitness. And so then I also talk about diet. I think diet and what we eat is extremely important. And we have lots of research on that. The Mediterranean diet, which we were talking about earlier, uh, there is a MIND diet, M-I-N-D, by a Rush University professor, Dr. Martha Claire Morris, who came and spoke at, at our center and has really shown a lot of promising results in her research, which is a combination of Mediterranean and low salt. So I talk to my patients about that. I also talk about the importance of being social. We know that people who are social have, can have an improved mood. They, can, they are challenging their brains. Uh, they're, they're really just enjoying their, their quality of life as well as sleep. So sleep is another factor. And we know, and there, there is a list of, well, of course, not smoking. So those who, um, who smoke, I have had success in getting people to either uh, taper down or to actually quit. And so I think you, you just have to find the right ways to motivate people. And I think this concern about, about aging and dementia is a strong motivator. What about, we have another question about um, FTD. I mean, there's different types of dementia, Lewy bodies, FTD, frontal temporal lobal dementia. Um, when we talk about genetic risk, are we talking about the exclusively about Alzheimer's disease or are we talking about dementia as a basket? Are there different genes associated with different types of dementias? Yeah, so there are different genes associated with different types of dementias. I'm not as familiar with the other types, but I can tell you that ApoE is specific to Alzheimer's disease because of ApoE4's association with the amyloid protein. And so the amyloid protein is the one that is abnormal in the brain 
that eventually leads to further changes into what we would describe as Alzheimer's disease. There are other genes though related to Parkinson's disease and Parkinson's disease can cause dementia later on in life as well as Lewy body dementia. And then you described frontal temporal dementia and there are some associations. These are not as strong as APOE is to Alzheimer's but these are still being actively investigated as well. So um, there's actually another question um, coming in that says, um, you know, there's so much to learn about genetics and Alzheimer's. Um, I consulted a genetics counselor about my DNA test and her response was, there's no DNA test for Alzheimer's. I ran my 23andMe kit through Prometheus and confirmed that I carry one copy of APOE uh, four. I know um, in our last live talk, it was re recommended to talk to a genetic counselor, but if the ge genetic counselor won't even acknowledge that there's a test for Alzheimer's, then what is the point? So I think what this um, question is really highlighting is different degrees of knowledge among um, healthcare providers as to uh, what you really uh, know about your genes, um, which which is not that surprising because we haven't been tested, we haven't been reading our genetics for the, our genes for that long. Um, but do you maybe what we could ask you is to say what should we be asking our doctors to determine whether or not we really want to get this test? Well, first, I, you know, I, I feel I feel for the person who met with the genetic counselor as someone who was in a clinic, I appreciate someone going to meet with a counselor first before getting the test. In general, that's where you would get the information, this informed consent about the risks and the benefits. I think one of the, the phrases that you mentioned in that question was a genetic test for Alzheimer's disease. And that's a little bit inaccurate. And it doesn't, I'm not explaining away the response from the genetic counselor, but APOE is a genetic test for the for the risk of developing Alzheimer's. It is not a causal risk, meaning, or a causal gen gene. It's not that you have APOE4 and you're going to get Alzheimer's. So it isn't truly a test for Alzheimer's. It is yet another risk factor, the same way smoking is and the same way having diabetes is. And so I think for, for the public, we should be educated on this and, and really uh, ask our providers, our healthcare um, personnel, you know, I am worried about this development what are my risks based on my profile, based on the things that you see? And is it of value that I would have a genetic test in addition to knowing the, the other medical conditions I have, the family history I have, and the lifestyle behaviors that I have? And, and I think having a truly informed conversation about, well, what is the meaning of this test and what will it do for me at the end of it? So um, we we get this question a lot. Um, we we hear exercise, and you you pointed out to make sure you just get up and move. We know the benefits of exercise to our overall health, and therefore decreasing our risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. Um, but again, there's a lot of confusion out there because how much exercise do we really need? Um, how much do we have to push ourselves um, in order to maintain a healthy brain? What, what is research telling us about that? So that's an excellent question, whoever asked that. Uh, I love that specific level of questioning because you're right, it's too generic to say you need to exercise. And in my clinic, I go much further into that. The American Heart Association recommends 150 minutes per week of moderate aerobic activity. 
And so that's very specific. And so I do recommend to my patients who are over the age of 65 that we, that's the goal. That's what we're working towards. It doesn't mean starting tomorrow, that's what you have to hit. But the goal is roughly 30 to 40 minutes a day, five to six days a week, so that you can hit 150 minutes. Now, when I say moderate aerobic activity, that really does mean uh, that you're, you're reaching about 70 to 75% of your maximum heart rate. And that's not an easy thing to calculate. So that's something people might want to Google and look up. How do I, how do I actually get a good estimate of that number? But the, what we do in our research center is what we call the talk test, which is if you can do your activity and you are able to talk and sing, well, then that's considered light aerobic activity. And that's good, but that isn't what we're looking for. If you can't talk or sing, that's considered vigorous. And that is great, but of course that isn't necessarily all, you, you could do a little bit less. So moderate is being able to talk and not sing. And so okay. I, I have this conversation with my patients. I'm really looking for that sweet spot. If you can do vigorous, I'm all for it. I think the more the better, but for safety's sake, and just so we know what we need to reach, moderate aerobic activity. I feel much better because my running partner and I constantly talk and run. So <laughs> I think we've struck that I hadn't heard about that talk test before. So I think that's a good way of putting it. What about, um, we hear when people are um, diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, is it too late? I mean, obviously there's plaque um, in the brain for a lot of us. Um, and um, who we, before, like decades before we actually ever see a symptom. So when you are getting diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or MCI for that matter, um, will any of these lifestyle changes change the onset um, if you're already at the stage where you're seeing symptoms? So the research is still looking into this. So the answer is we're not entirely sure some studies have shown benefit to exercise alone for people who are walking at a fast enough rate for their heart rate and that their, their course is better than those that don't. There's a, a well-known international study called the FINGER study where they combined exercise, diet, health promotion, education, and over a two-year course, they also performed better on certain testing. And so there's evidence that points that this can have a meaningful impact even after you have developed symptoms of some form of cognitive impairment. You know, what I tell my patients is that even if I'm wrong, even if this physical activity, the diet, the social activity that I'm prescribing to you, even if that doesn't change your course, in the end, I'm improving your function and your quality of life. And that is the meaning that we're looking for as we're getting older. So we um, also want to, um, I, one of the things I, I often wonder about is the role of genetics and research. So we talked a little bit about what we know today. Um, when we talk about biomarkers, obviously gen genes are one, um, providing an elevated risk, but can you give us an idea of how important it is to understand how our genetics are related to Alzheimer's disease in order to um, push us more uh, towards finding a cure. Well, so when you, when you mention so genetics are part of the biomarkers, other biomarkers would include that protein that I've referred to, amyloid. And then amyloid actually induces another protein called tau. 
And then those two together actually lead to cell death and the breakdown of our cells, which we would call uh, neurodegeneration, which simply means our cells in the brain are dying. So those are biomarkers. Those can be obtained by PET scans. So those are imaging scans or lumbar punctures. We're also looking into ways of using simple blood tests in order to look for some of these. And so together, when we look at all of these biomarkers, this is how we're studying the pathways to the development of Alzheimer's disease. The more we know about our genetics, all the studies that we've referred to, the more we know about these biomarkers, the more we can figure out, well, what are the different factors? When do they come into play? And what are things that we can do to stop it and have a meaningful result from that? I mean, even for research, though, knowing that there is a uh, population with elevated risk allows research to look at those people, does it not? It does. And so those are, so knowing that a person has uh, APOE4 and amyloid in their brain on a scan would allow for certain studies to really look at those at the highest risk and do an intervention and see if that is helpful. And so that having the right study population is critical in order to determine if an intervention is truly effective or if a drug is truly effective. How, how important is the, um, you know, you, you had told me earlier um, your father had early onset um, Alzheimer's disease. And um, I, I'm wondering how important are the early onset um, folks who, who have um, possibly one of the genes that have been identified as markers um, for early onset. I mean, people usually when you talk about early onset and you have one of those early onset genes, um, the, the immediate response is like, wow, they will definitely get early onset rather than if you have E4, uh, we talk about it in terms of elevated risk. Um, you know, there's always a possibility you are an E4 carrier and you'll never get Alzheimer's. We don't really have that conversation around the early onset folks. So, uh, or I should say the, those who, who possess the early onset genes. So can you tell us a little bit about the difference there? And really, um, if that is, uh, if the early onset crowd is actually even more helpful to research. So the early onset the population is critical to research more because they have a, a, a higher certainty or higher risk of developing uh, Alzheimer's disease. And I use the word risk there, but when a person has uh, a family member with early onset, they have every right to go and meet with a genetic counselor to discuss the reasons, the risks, and the benefits to getting a genetic test. And you've already mentioned those genes in particular. So presenilin-1, presenilin-2, and amyloid precursor protein. So those three are very well known, very well studied. And there's actually lots of studies going on nationally in that population. And so people can go and have that genetic test done. Now that isn't done through a direct-to-consumer private uh, organization. So you can't get that through 23andMe, but you can get that at a, at a university in your state. You can get that at, a certain, um, at certain healthcare institutions. And there is value to that if a person is prepared for that knowledge. There's also value in that this definition of early onset is still gray. Uh, many people will use the age cutoff of 65 and say, if you were diagnosed before 65, that's early onset. Whereas I've also read papers that saying before 60 and into your 50s is when you would be early onset. And so because of that grayness, I think it is valuable for people to talk about 
this very high uh, chance of having development of Alzheimer's. And I say that because the, those genes that I mentioned, you only need one of them to develop Alzheimer's disease. And so that with that risk or with that level of certainty, there's a lot of consequences to this. So I, I want to get back to kind of like the precision medicine point, because, um, you know, a lot of research is looking for, we, we always say if you have comorbidities, like a, a disease like diabetes, um, then you have an elevated risk for Alzheimer's disease, which would point to the fact that, you know, Alzheimer's may be, we don't know, it may be a byproduct of something else going on within our bodies. Um, um, and it may be just um, related to something else. We don't know, we don't actually know that Alzheimer's is uh, just a disease on its own. We, you know, I think more research is going into how is everything related? Like when we talk about the heart and the brain, you know, um, so, are we headed towards, I mean, would it be helpful to science to really um, be able to analyze risk of other disease in, in order to relate it back to Alzheimer's? Absolutely. And I think the idea of what we call multimorbidity or having multiple diseases as it relates to what you're looking at. And so with Alzheimer's, I think it's critical that we don't have this pristine population of a person with no medical problems who develops Alzheimer's, but instead has a real population of people with five to seven, five to 10 medical problems and on 20 different medications so that we know what are all the factors at play. And that really speaks to the, this idea of all the different genetics. It, what we're finding is that there's not one clean disease with Alzheimer's. There's many different flavors of it and there's many different reasons for the development. And we still have to figure all of those out because one drug may not be enough for every single person it might be multiple different things, at, you know, addressing multiple different factors. So um, we have a question coming in about um, how, you know, we always talk about the elevated risk um, um, through our genetics. Um, we talked a little bit about APOE2 as um, research believes that could provide a bit of a protective um, element against Alzheimer's disease. Um, but this, this viewer is asking, is there anything else that we know protects us? Um, is there anything else we should be looking for in our genes to reduce, our, um, to look at the, you know, to, to say we actually have less of a chance of getting Alzheimer's? It's a great question. So there are studies showing that this gene BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which leads to the development of new genes or new uh, brain cells, that there are certain variants of that that are protective. We are also looking at other genes that are related to anti-inflammatory properties, anti-oxidation properties. And so I, I, you know, I think this is a good point, whoever asked this question. It's not just about the negative with our genes. There are positive things too. And we know that looking at people who have lived over 100 years uh, and that don't have any cognitive issues, that there might be some genetic uh, variance to them that shows this idea of protective or resilience um, as, far as, it come, as far as their cognition goes. Is it, you said it's BDNF. Is that what it's called? BDNF. BDNF, it, but presumably if we have our 23andMe, it's not going to tell us about BDNF. Is that right? It's my understanding that that is not shared in 23andMe, right? Okay. So um, the only way any, and, and what do we know about it in terms of 
um, you know, if, if you if you do have, is it is it a variant BDNF? I mean, what do I call it? So it's a it's a gene site. Yeah, it's I would call it a, a gene site. It's a gene site. Okay, so um, how much research has gone into BDNF, and um, you know, in terms of if you do have it, you probably are not going to get Alzheimer's. Or I mean, we've assessed the risk with E4. Is have we assessed the um, protective benefits with BDNF? I would say we're currently assessing the protective benefits of it because like APOE where there's three different versions, we know that there are different versions of BDNF and so we call those mutations, different forms of it. And so I think we're still looking into, well, what is it about one version versus the other that makes it protective? How protective is it? And so the reason 23andMe isn't able to share that with us is that it hasn't been fully confirmed and proven that that's going to be one that we should know and look into. And so- what, what does it take though? I mean, and how long do we have to wait before we know that information? I mean, that, you know, we, we tend to like report on little bits and pieces of science and science is looking into this, looking into that. But what, what we really should be asking is like, well, if we, how long will it take to conclude um, that this is really something that is protective and when does that trickle down to people like you and me? I think that's an excellent question. And I think that's being asked more and more. We have so many wonderful people who are willing to volunteer, but we also want information. We want to know more about ourselves. And I think these are all valid concerns and statements that at what point do we, do we stop safeguarding information or, or at least studies and let people hear that for themselves? I, don't, I, I can't speak on behalf of the research community, but I do think it's a question that is being addressed uh, at many centers. The idea of amyloid alone is being addressed, I think, across the world. At what point are we sharing this information with people so that they know their particular risk, so that they know where they are in their, in their course of life? And so I don't have an answer for that question, but I think it's a very valid one. And I do believe people are, are asking it, not just here uh, now, but at, at research centers. You know, people want this information. People want to know their risk. And if, if done in, a, in, a, in the right way, uh, we had talked about sort of getting a test to see your ancestry and then finding out your APOE4. That wouldn't be the right way, but in done in a way where people are informed of what it is they're about to hear and what is available after that disclosure, I think people uh, would be more open to that. And I think centers would start doing it more often, but it's going to take time, I guess, before that culture shift occurs. So we have, um, we know through research that now we can determine if there's plaque in our brains decades before we may ever see a symptom of Alzheimer's disease. Just knowing that, um, you know, I, I may have plaque in my brain right now, even though I have no signs uh, of the disease. Should we, should science really just stick to prevention? Like how do we prevent this disease from, from coming or should, should we be looking for a cure simultaneously? What, what's the current thought and um, where, which direction is, is science going? Are we, are we now saying we're heavily learning, leaning towards prevention? So I would say it's going both ways. And so we are looking more and more at the population that has no cognitive symptoms, but has amyloid in the brain. So those people who are at highest risk or at higher risk, and we are doing both prevention uh, interventions, that would be a lot of these lifestyle changes, as well as drug therapy. So a lot 
uh, of drug treatments now, or drug trials are going to be geared towards this population. And we're already seeing that. Um, more and more studies are focusing on people who are cognitively healthy, who have no complaints, but have amyloid in the brain, as well as people who have mild cognitive impairment. So those that have cognitive complaints, but are, do not have that stage of dementia. And so we're seeing that earlier and earlier uh, in the course of disease um, being the focal point for those looking for interventions. Okay, and I, I love this next question because this comes up all the time and there's so many, so many studies related to alcohol with so many, so much conflicting information. Have a couple glasses of wine, don't stay away from it. Um, so um, the, this viewer has asked, um, you know, the Mind Diet actually says a glass of wine is good for you. Um, so where are you in whether or not we should just be kicking back with that one glass of red, one or two, no more? Um, is it good for us? Or, um, you know, I know at Being Patient, we've published um, recent studies that have actually said, no, alcohol is not good for your brain. It actually could elevate your risk of dementia. Well, I'm as confused as the person who wrote that question, because you're right, science keeps going back and forth and different studies are saying different things. I think this is one of the downsides is of, of all of this information and all of these studies is that when they come into conflict, what do we do with that? Because the studies that are showing both results are valid and good studies. They were, they were done uh, in a good scientific way. And so I, I must say, when it comes to this idea of prevention and this idea of healthy living in people who do not have symptoms, yeah, the studies do show that having a, a glass of, of wine, uh, one alcoholic beverage, seems to have an associated reduced risk. And that means that it doesn't cause a reduced risk. It just happens to be related to a reduced risk. And so they've never found a link as to why that is. Lots of people think it is because of the social engagement, maybe potentially your, your status, your socioeconomic status in life, um, as well as just community engagement. Now there are studies, and I'm sure this is one that your your being patient was referring to. There's studies coming out of Europe saying that any amount of alcohol can change proteins and the chemistry in your brain. And so they didn't comment that it was bad or good, but that this is not a a substance that doesn't have an effect on us. And so I've taken that very seriously, and I do tell my patients now that have cognitive symptoms. At this point, I think it's safer to not have alcohol than than it is to have alcohol. I still want you to go out and socialize. But for my own take, I, I think it's safer in this regard to, to not be drinking. Now, I don't have publications to stand on to, to make that claim. I can't say this is all evidence-based, but I appreciate the, the frustration in the person writing that question that there's so much back and forth. We're not really sure where we've landed. I must and, say- Yeah, sorry, go ahead. The one other thing is that mood is such a, an important factor when it comes to our well-being and our cognition and alcohol is a depressant. And so we know that that's, that's not only anyone's gonna argue with that, that's how it works. And so to some degree, and for certain people, alcohol can, can worsen a mood and it can, de, or it can uh, take away your motivation from, from doing the things that we do think are beneficial. And so in that regard, I also think there's reasons uh, to be careful of that. Well, interestingly enough, when we talk about alcohol, it's usually not the alcohol. It's the, the it's the, uh, I'm going to get this word wrong, resveratol, I think it's called, in red wine found in grapes, right? So it's that element that 
um, is believed to have something to do with like opening your blood vessels, um, lowering cholesterol. Um, it's not actually the alcohol. Like no one's saying drink two tequilas a night, right? It, it's usually associated, I, what I've read, around red wine. And um, there's ways to get that benefit for, for, for that, you know, they, they say vegetables with dark purple eggplant, uh, uh, red cabbage, things like that um, are what contain um, that protective element. Um, but again, we need more research around this, right? There's no, there's nothing to say, eat a lot of uh, purple vegetables and you're never gonna get Alzheimer's disease. Um, which, which brings me, I mean, I, I, I think I wanna um, end this talk um, by saying, you know, it is really interesting to learn about how our genetics um, relate to Alzheimer's disease. However, there's nothing really that would change anything um, the way we live our lives. Um, we know that exercise, a healthy lifestyle, means there's less chance of getting Alzheimer's disease. So whether you're genetically predisposed or not, we should all be living a healthy lifestyle. I think that's my point. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe we're just too, it's too early to really talk and have a conversation around genes and how they will affect our own lives. Um, I can see why science is going down that path because we need to get more people into clinical trials. We need to isolate people who are more at risk so that we could study those people and understand whether or not they're gonna get Alzheimer's or um, what's related to them getting Alzheimer's. Um, but you know, for people like you and me, uh, we have a parent who had, has, has or had Alzheimer's disease, but we should just be living a healthy life full stop. It, it, is that the way we should look at it today? I mean, I think you said that quite, quite well. I, I completely agree with you. As of now in our, in our current time, there's not a lot we can do that's unique to people who have ApoE or any genetic risk factor. And at the end of the day, it, you know, a person living a life filled with meaning and activity, whether it's physical or social, we, we know that that is the best that we're, we're doing as far as prevention. And so, and, and hopefully, you know, with these genetic studies, we're gonna be able to figure out more pathways and more other, more interventions that may not require medications, but may require other things that would reduce our risk. But I completely agree with you. But I should add though, that there are people who are genetically predisposed and they monitor everything about their health, um, hormone levels for one, um, you know, um, the, um, how, they, how they process sugars, um, all of those things that we know um, we have control over through our lifestyles around diet and decision-making to make sure that um, we, it, you know, if you monitor those levels, then maybe, I mean, I know that there are people who are actively looking at this, um, like really looking at the deficiencies within our own body to determine how we should regulate those deficiencies if we know that there could be some relation to Alzheimer's. And I would never fault someone for being proactive. I would actually encourage those people to document, to journal the things that they're observing and doing, because through those observations, that might lead to further large studies or new ideas. And so, yes, I mean, the, we can study a lot of different things on our own. 
And I think that for those who are willing to do it, then you know, good for you and please record it so that we can, we can learn from each other. But this, this also really highlights um, really the need for, for, well, one, people to participate in more studies, for there to be more studies around how one thing relates to the other, right? I mean, we're looking at Alzheimer's specifically, but maybe we should be looking at high cholesterol or maybe we should be looking at a drop in hormones um, or, you know, um, regulation of hormones. So, um, you know, this also points to, um, you know, maybe maybe we are just at the beginning of a world where we where precision medicine is needed for something like this, um, because maybe just maybe there's a way to prevent this disease. But we don't know about it because we're not looking at it as, you know, connected systems and how they relate to our brain. Um, could could that be possible? I, I think you're right. And I think precision medicine and looking at the interrelatedness of our lifestyle, our genes, our behaviors, our other medical problems is key to that. And I do think that that is being done. It's just not happening as fast as we would like it to be done. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Chin, um, for this really interesting, insightful conversation. I know there's been a lot of questions um, around genetics and lifestyle for that matter. And we're really, really very grateful um, to people like yourself who are, I'm sure, busy with your own research for taking the time to talk to us um, about um, our community, about how genetics relates, and, and for that matter, lifestyle. So thank you so much for joining joining us today. You're welcome and thank you. And thank you to the people watching. You had excellent questions. And we wish you all the luck um, for, for your research at the University of Wisconsin. Um, yeah, and please keep us posted um, on what you find. Um, you know, we're very supportive of any type of research going into this disease. No, thank you. Okay, thank you so much.